Well, amen, if that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. Um, We just sang this lyric. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain was borrowed for three days because our God has robbed the grave. That is, a, that is a proclamation that we say as a, as a church body, as a believer, so that we will say, this is the whole basis of our faith. This is not just a lyric that is on a screen. It's not just words that we say because the worship leader chose that to be the, the song that we're gonna to sing today. We proclaim that truth and we base everything that we believe in and we commit our lives to Jesus based on this very thing. The death could not hold our King. And I just, as I, as I read those lyrics, I begin to think about, and as we sing those lyrics, I begin to think about what that must have been like to be a disciple. To what that must have been like to be one of the, those that followed Jesus every single day for three years. They heard Jesus' teaching. They heard him making these proclamations that he was the son of God. And he told them what was going to be coming. And the world around them didn't believe him. It was to the point that they, they thought he, Jesus was a heretic, that they were ready to put him on the cross as they did. They arrested him. All the things that they had been hearing about Jesus for three years, all of a sudden he goes to the cross, he's, ar- he's arrested, he goes to the cross, and then he's put in a tomb. And they're sitting here thinking, is everything that Jesus said about himself, is it true? Did we believe a lie for the last three years? But then he arose. You got these three, you got these 12 men, 11 men at this point that that had zero social standing in their culture. But they got to witness the story of Jesus up close and personal. The very thing that we read about in this book every day, they saw it. And what that must have been like. What that must have been like to see Jesus come up out of the grave and they realized that everything that he had been teaching them for the last three years was truth. It changed their life. We're here 2,000 years later talking about it because of what it did to these men's life. After Jesus' resurrection, one of the first times he sees his disciples again, he is with them and he, he gives them, it's some of the first words he speaks to them after his resurrection. It's in Matthew 28, um, verses 18 through 20. And you know this verse is the Great Commission. And he says to them, the first things he says to them is, therefore go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very first thing that Jesus said, therefore, since you have seen everything that I told you to be true, because you know all this to be true, that I am the Son of God, it is your command, it is your duty, it is my commission to you to go out into the world and make disciples. That's the first thing he told him after he resurrected. And then about 40 or so days later, as he is about to ascend into heaven, and those that had been witness of him being alive again, he is meeting them, and just before he ascends to heaven, the very last words that Jesus ever says on this earth in his physical body is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's actually a passage that you guys have on the wall over here in the hallway. But here's what he said to them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness." in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says to him, the, the first words he says after his, as, after his resurrection is go make disciples, and the last words he says is go be my witness. 
and you're going to go be my witness in your city and in your town and in your state and in your country and to the ends of the earth. That's what I need you to do. Those are the words he said. And those disciples, those men who saw everything that Jesus did for those three years, they didn't feel like they had any other choice because if Jesus is who he says he is and he came up out of the grave, the only thing they could do is tell everybody about it. And that's why every one of those men were willing to lay down their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. And this weekend, that's what we talked about. There's a dying world out there that the only source of life is through Jesus Christ. My name is Lance Millsaps, and I've had the honor and the privilege to, to be here this weekend to serve along with Seth and his team and with these group of students. And, um, and I, I'm, ex- I'm excited to be here this morning to share with you as a congregation. Pastor Blake, thank you for the opportunity to be up here. I do not take this responsibility lightly. And so thank you for sharing your pulpit with me and having an opportunity to share with you guys. But church, um, church, can I just say this to you? Um, I had the privilege of meeting Seth when he was a, an 18-year-old kid, a freshman in college. Um, he came to volunteer for an event that I was doing, and he was playing a little box drum on the stage um, for us in the, in the worship team. And I got to know him over that weekend, and after about three or four more months of getting to know him and seeing him around a little bit more, I was like, I've got to have this guy on my staff. And his second semester of his freshman year, he joined my staff in in our church in Birmingham. And for three and a half years, we served together. And being here this weekend and seeing him here, can I just, church, you should be so proud of this guy. He is, Seth is as good as they come. And I don't say that because I know him. I don't say that because he invited me to be here. I say that because I truly believe that about him. He has something that is just special. And the way that he loves Jesus and wants his students to know Jesus more and to make him known is uncommon. And students, as as a student pastor, you have the best of the best. And I just want you guys to know that he is really, he is unbelievable in church. You should truly be proud. But you should also be proud of these students. These kids are world changers. You guys as a church, yeah. What we saw God do this weekend, what we saw God do this weekend is, is like I said, the word uncommon is, is going to be common this morning because what we saw happen this weekend is not, is not normal. We, you know, you have so many, you have 140 students here today, and many of those students that are here today is because as your church has talked about this Who's Your One campaign, and you've talked about inviting your one and knowing there's a lot of students in here today because they were somebody's one. And so a lot of those 26 students that we saw heard about that have made decisions were because they were invited this weekend. Can I tell you as a church, as a church body, as, as adults in the room, we can look and we can learn a lot from our teenagers because you never know how far your, your boldness will go. You never know how far your invite will take you. And we've seen lives changed as a result. And so it has been a a really special weekend to be here today. And I'm just honored um, to be here. And I'm thankful for Seth and Caroline and their team for allowing me to be here. And um, I just want to share a little bit. Um, When I was a sophomore in college, um, and it was October of 2000, um, my, my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, so we'll just preface that. My girlfriend at the time, Brittany, um, she, will, she went to college in Kentucky. I went to college in Mississippi. We started dating long distance, 600 miles apart. Uh, we went to high school together and actually never dated in high school. We went on double dates together and sat on opposite sides of the table sometimes. Um, she was one of my really close friends, and when we went off to college, we kind of realized we really missed hanging out with each other, and she came to visit one time, and we said, you know what, let's give this thing a try. 
And so we started dating um, October the 24th of 1999, and it was October of 2000, and all of a sudden, um, it, it's, we're celebrating, or not all of a sudden, this is not like it was a surprise, but we were celebrating our one-year dating anniversary as if that's a thing that you should do, but we did that. And so she flew in from Kentucky, and I went to pick her up at the airport, and we were going from the airport to meet our friends to the Mississippi State Fair. Um, that happens every October, Mississippi. Um, it is about as much fun as it sounds. Um, we. We went, I picked her up, and we drove down there, and um, we ate some funnel cake, as you do at the state fair, and we looked at rickety old rides that there was no chance that we were getting on. And we walked around with some of our friends for about an hour, and we, we started talking. It's like, you know, we have not seen each other in about two months, so let's just go to dinner and hang out, just the two of us. So we decided to leave. And so we leave, and we were in downtown Jackson. There was a lot of construction going on, and we were actually parked in the parking lot of the church that I attended while I was in college. And we, we walked up to the parking lot, and the gentleman that I am, of course, I walked and opened up the door for her, and I put her in the car, and she, she sat down, and I walked around the car, and I, I went to sit down on my side. Um, and as I sat down, I didn't shut my door right away. Um, it was in 2000, so students, we didn't have cell phones back then, um, or we did, but we were only allowed to use them in an emergency because you had to pay for every minute that you were on the phone with someone. That's, you guys don't understand, but that was life for, for me when I was your age. And so um, I, I picked up my phone, I, I checked it every time I got in the car in case something was, and I saw I had a missed call from my dad. So I was like, okay, maybe there was some sort of emergency here. And so I went, as I was about to hit send to call my dad, I hear um, somebody say, hey, and I thought it was one of our friends who decided to leave early as well. And I said, hey, and I turn around and there's a gun stuck to my forehead. I'm just going to stop there because the end of the story doesn't really matter, right? Now, the end of the story does matter. The end of the story, it's, it's frustrating when people don't tell you the end of the story. You know, when you don't, you don't just start reading a book and you get to the last chapter and be like, you know what, I'm good. I'm just going to stop here. Or you don't watch a movie and you get 15 minutes to the end and you just like, well, I, I figured this out. I'm not going to watch the end of it anymore. No, we don't do that because the end of the story matters. The end of the story changes us. Sometimes knowing how the story ends impacts our life. And I am going to tell you the rest of this story in a little bit, but just not right now because I need to prove a point. The end of the story matters. It changes everything about us. When I was in, in high school, I was not much of a reader. Um, and it wasn't, it, it was a lot because, it was not because of my comprehension, but I read slow. And I would get bored because um, I wanted to do something active and, and, and you know, and do, go outside and play or do something like that. And so I, I didn't read a lot because it just, it bored me. Even the books that I loved, I would get tired of it after like 30 minutes and I'd have to put it down. So when it came to school assignments and I had to read most of the time, um, and students, I am not endorsing this as a good idea because English was not my best grade. So just stay with me on this. But what I would do is I would read the last chapter of the book first. So that when we got into conversations in class, I could at least have an intelligent conversation like I had actually read the book, okay? And so I could maybe, um, you know, just kind of work my way through and make some stuff up in a paper if I had to because I knew at least how it ended because the end of the story typically matters. And so um, when we were reading Romeo and Juliet, my, my senior year of high school, um, I knew how that story ended before everybody else did. And as you're reading it, you think that this Romeo and Juliet is just this epic love story, but in fact, it's a terrible tragedy. But as you're reading it, you think, oh, look at these two young kids, you know, the Montagues and the Capulets, and they don't like each other, but these two are lovebirds. They're just willing to do whatever it takes for the other. But who knows that these two are going to take their own life in the name of love? This epic love story is a terrible tragedy, but knowing the end of the story completely changes how you think of that book or that play. 
You know, when it, but when it comes to the living, breathing, active, penetrating word of God, the greatest story that is ever told, as we read this book, what you begin to recognize is there is a scarlet cord of the gospel that runs from the first page to the last page. And in it, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 22, when we see the fall of man to the last word of amen at the end of the book, we see how man's shortcomings are overcome by the redemptive grace of Jesus. And that's what this story is all about. And it's because of this grace that Jesus offers to us that the end of this story brings about the greatest life change that you and I can ever experience. Something that has truly mattered to me in my course of ministry is this, this phrase is knowing the end of the story matters. As you've heard me say it several times already today, we, we know the end of the story. The good news is we've all read the end of this book. We know how it ends and we know what that means. But because we know the end of the story, especially this story, it has to change everything about us. It has to change the way that we see every single person that we come in contact with. But here's how we know, here's what we know about this story. The story started out in a state of total perfection. It was God in his days of creation, in his seven days of creation, at the end of every day, he said that it was good. God and man were in harmony with one another, walking alongside, talking, communicating with one another. But then this story was interrupted with quite a bit of a plot twist because there was a talking serpent that came in with a piece of fruit that kind of threw things off. And Adam and Eve, they disobeyed the one rule that God gave them. They ate from the tree, and sin entered into the world, and we know that as a result, there was a need for a Savior for all mankind. And you see all of man's shortcomings, but then we see that God loved us enough that he would send his only son to come into this earth to be the Savior that we all need. And he lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved, and ultimately he goes to the cross for our sake, and three days later he rose again because going to the cross wasn't going to be enough. And if the story would have stopped there, that would be worth our life. But the story doesn't end there. And everything that happened 2,000 years ago shapes everything about us today. And everything that happened 2,000 years ago, students, it leads us to a whole different level of commitment than we've ever had. And it forces us to live a life that maybe we've never even considered. In the book of Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time today. There, is, there are seven verses that can tell us the entire story, that give us the complete story, that tell us the end of this story. And we're going to start in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Excuse me. And it says this, Have this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something that could be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father." See, this is the end. This is the whole story. When you go back to verse 6, and I I think they're just going to be up there so I can reference it for you. When you go back to verse 6, this verse points back to fallen mankind. It takes us back to the garden. 
You see, when, when, when the serpent entered into the story, he, he offered up to Eve this temptation where he questioned what God had said, and, and God told her that if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. But the serpent looks at Eve and says, you will not surely die. In fact, you will be like God. You will know what it means to know the difference between right and wrong. You will be like God. But in, in what we know is they ate from the tree. What, what happened from that is it completely separated us from God. And we see in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God as a result of what happened in the garden. And Jesus, knowing that we were, we were fallen short, he recognized that because of sin, the equality with God is not something that we could grasp. Being equal to God is not something that we could ever do. So in the ultimate act of humility, we see in verse 7, in the ultimate act of humility, Jesus gives up his place in heaven. He gives up um, everything to become a servant, to take on the form of mankind, and he set aside his rights as the Son of God in heaven for the purpose of fulfilling his Father's will. In John chapter 1, it tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when you fast forward all the way to verse 14, it says that Word that was Jesus made His dwelling among us. He came to this earth, and He lived our life. He walked through every single thing that you and I will ever go through. He experienced the things that we experience. There is no temptation that is common to man that Jesus did not experience Himself. So He didn't just come down here and say, you know, and, and just hover over us. No, He came down here in the message version and said, He flesh and blood. He became flesh and mud and flesh, flesh and blood, and He and He walked in our neighborhoods. That's what He did. Jesus lived our life. And he came down and humbled himself. But not only did he humble himself, verse 8 tells us that he was defiled like no other human in history. He was laughed at. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was cursed. They took thorns and shoved them into his skull, and they spread his arms wide and drove spikes through his wrists and a spike through his feet. And they hung him up naked in front of everybody for the world to see. And they mocked him and laughed at him. And a death that was deserved for the worst of the worst. And Jesus came down knowing that was going to be his outcome. And he still came willingly. In, in Romans 5.8, it tells us that God shows his love for us that even though we are sinners, he still chose to die for us. That doesn't make sense to me, guys. I don't understand that. There's a lot of things about Jesus that I don't understand that I'm still grateful for. I don't understand why he would ever choose to die for somebody like me. There's oftentimes where I think if you knew the things that went through my mind, if you knew the things that I thought, if you knew the things that I have said in my past, if you knew the things that I had done, Jesus wouldn't die for me. Mm -mm, not me. And I think there's some of you in this room that may be thinking the same exact thing. There's no way that somebody could love me enough to do that for me. I don't understand that about Jesus, but I know that he did it. I don't understand that while he was hanging on the cross, that he died for the very people that put him up there. I don't understand how he looked down upon the soldiers that were below him, and the words that he said was, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. I can tell you this, if that were me, forgiveness would not have been the thing that was going through my mind. But he said, forgive them. I don't get it. I'm grateful for it, but I don't get it. I also don't understand. I don't, I'm grateful for grace, even though I don't always fully understand it. But here's the other part that I don't always understand. Because we know that there is grace, 
I don't understand how we as a church body, as followers of Christ, how we can oftentimes cheapen it and take it for granted. Because we know that we can ask for forgiveness later. I don't know how we can do that sometimes when we realize what Jesus has done for us, but we do it. And it's something that is really hard for, us, for me to, to, re, to overcome. It's something that's really hard for me to consider, but I do it all the time. The Apostle Paul um, addressed this situation in Romans chapter 6, and he asked this question. He says, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? He answers his own question with an exclamatory statement and says, by no means can we do that. How can we, how can we who died to sin, how can we ever still live in it? He says, you can't cheapen grace. You don't just keep on sinning for the purpose of sinning because you know that you're forgiving. You live in grace. But here's the thing. I don't think we oftentimes understand grace until we've been offered grace. I heard this story recently about a, a seminary professor. He had one of the most difficult classes on his entire campus, and he was, the students that were in that class, they were getting prepared for the end, their end of the year exam. It was a comprehensive exam from the, from the beginning of the semester to the end, and it was a, a, a test that every one of the students was just stressed over. One of the lessons that was in there was, a, a, was on grace, and it was an area that he didn't feel like his students were fully comprehending. And these students were staying up late at night. They were coming in for, for, for study groups with the professor, everything they could possibly do to, to get ready for this test. And so on the morning of the exam, they walk into, the, they walk into the, their classroom. The pro professor addresses the class, and he says, here's the thing. I'm passing out your test. Keep it face down. Don't turn it over until I give you all the instructions. Once I turn it over, you can read the instructions, and when you finish the test, you can turn it in, and you can go off, and you can have a great break over the summer or winter or whenever that was. And so he, he gives the instructions, and he passes out the test, and they flip it over, and you start seeing student one by one just kind of looking at it confused. And they start looking around, like, am I the only one? I don't, I don't get it. And, and one of the students finally raises his hand and the professor calls him to his desk and he says, sir, um, I think you might have by mistake given me the key. And he says, what do you mean I gave you the key? He says, well, I have on my test, all the answers are filled in in red ink. Did you give me the key? And he said, no, I didn't give you the key. And he says, and the professor said, would you like to turn this test in? And he says, well, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, the answers are already there. He goes, I know. He goes, would you like to turn this test in? He goes, I, I think I might. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, if you turn this in, what, kind, what grade do you think that you will receive? And he said, well, based on what I've read and what I've looked over, it looks like every question is right. I'm pretty sure I'll get a 100. And he goes, well, wouldn't you like to turn that in? And he said, can I? <laughs> and he, he says, yeah, you can turn it in, but I need to ask you a question. What did you do to earn that grade? And he said, well, I studied really hard and I was prepared to come in and take it. He goes, no, no, no. What did you do on this test to earn that grade? And he said, sir, I didn't do nothing. He goes, you're right. I took the test for you. I did it all for you. And that's grace. And he stood up and he goes to the class and he addresses the class and says, all year long, I've been trying to teach you what it means to live in grace. And by writing this in, I wanted you to see it in red ink because it is a symbol of the blood that Jesus shed for you that you didn't deserve. But I'm, gonna, I'm giving you grace in the same way that Jesus said, and I hope you understand that. So go live in grace and have a great summer. <laughs> I never had that, professor. Um, <laughs> 
I wish I would have, if my English grade would have been a whole lot better had I had, I had that professor, I wish I would have. But here's the thing, he, that he showed grace, and because of that grace, and because of the humility that Jesus shown, coming down to earth from, from, and giving up his rights in heaven, he come down to earth, as a result of that humility, his willingness to die for you and I, it says in verse 9, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name. And in verse 10 and 11, it says that, that at that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Guys, that's the end of the story. What Paul is teaching us is that Jesus was given a name that is above every other name, and the end of the story was not Easter Sunday. As amazing of an end of a story as that would be, that wasn't it. The end of the story is that one day every single knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess, and they are going to proclaim Jesus as Lord. And that name that Jesus was given as Lord is not just a saying, it's not a slang word, it's not a bad habit. You see, we live in a world today that is filled with political campaigns that they're trying to promote their names. We live in a world where celebrities and athletes are doing everything they can in their power to make themselves known. But at best, their names are nothing but fleeting. They are a vapor in the, in the wind and they will be gone momentarily. But the name of Jesus, that he is Lord, is a name of honor and of power and of authority. And more than anything else, it is a name that is eternal. And one day every knee is going to bow, and one day every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And as much as we would owe our life to Jesus because of what he did on Good Friday, and as amazing of an ending as Easter Sunday would be, the end of the story happens when one day every knee bows. And for you and I, the end of the story, knowing how this story ends, it has to change everything about us. It has to change about the way you see every person that you come in contact with because the end of the story changes everything about you. That October night back in 2000, when I had that gun stuck to my forehead, the, this uh, courteous man um, looked at me and just with great manners, just, he said, give me all of your money, please. <laughs> um, you know, and I got this gun stuck to my forehead and I had $7 cash in my pocket. So I reached in my pocket and said, sir, this is all I got. And continuing with his courtesy, he asked me to um, give him my wallet. And so I reached in my wallet and said, and I opened up and said, sir, I literally have no money. And he snatched my wallet out of my hands. And then um, he got extra kind with me. And then he pointed the gun across my face at Brittany, who is now my wife, across my face. And he pointed at her and he asked her to give her all the money. In that moment, she went full on girl mode right then and there. She was like, we're just poor college kids at the fair. Like, and she was like, that was my $7 anyway. And you know, she's freaking out. You know, and it was hers. I was holding it for her. She didn't want to carry her purse. And, and so we, but he looks in the back seat and he sees her suitcase. And he said, give me that bag. And so we reach back and we hand that bag and I, this guy takes off and I see him look in the rearview mirror and he runs off and he jumps, jumps in a car like four or five cars back and a group of people drive off and, you know, this guy walks away with $7 cash and a suitcase full of women's clothing. Um, not, his, not his best score by any means, but I don't tell you that because of that. I tell you that story because of how that story has changed me. Because every single day for the last 20 years, every time I walk to my car, especially at night, I'm looking over my shoulder, checking my surroundings. Every single time that I walk to my car at night and I have my keys in my hand, my keys are sticking out through my fingers just in case somebody comes around. Every single day for the last 20 years that I've got in my car, the first thing I do is shut the door. 
Because what happened to me on that night has changed me forever. I didn't get my $7 back and we didn't get Brittany's clothes back. But that night changed me. It changed everything about me. Guys, here's what I want you to know. We are privileged to know the end of this story. And it has to change everything about us. When it says every knee is gonna bow, that means believers, it means non-believers, it means Satan, it means the demons, it even means that person in your life that ridicules you and makes fun of you because of the stands that you make. One day, they're gonna bow. And one day, they're gonna confess. And if you are a committed follower of Jesus, knowing the end of the story should breed an unbelievable confidence in you because you know that one day you're gonna spend eternity with Jesus. But there's also an alternate ending to this story. Because if you choose Jesus today while you're on this earth, it means you have eternal salvation. But if the first time you ever declare Jesus as Lord is when you are kneeled, when you are kneeling before him, it means eternal separation. And as much as it should breed a confidence in us, it should also create an overwhelming sense of urgency in us. Dr. Alvin Reed is a seminary professor at Southeastern University, Southeastern Seminary, excuse me. He's a world-renowned author on evangelism and personal evangelism. And he says this in one of his books, that the United States is now the fourth largest mission field in the world. That's a sobering reality for us because we only consider missionary mission somewhere else. But our greatest mission field is in our backyard. Our greatest mission field, guys, is in your hallway, in your locker room, maybe in your home. Because the reality is we, in most situations that we find ourselves in, there's more people in the room that don't know Jesus than do. You come across people every single day at your job, at the ball field, in your classroom, in the community, maybe even your own home that don't know Jesus and they don't know the end of the story. And if we believe that the end of the story is true, it has to affect the way that we see them. It has to affect the way that we approach them. Because if you truly believe what the Bible says, that those that have not declared Jesus as Lord, they won't get to spend eternity with him. They have eternity in separation. And that's a very real thing. The end of this story doesn't change. The first words Jesus said after his resurrection was go and make disciples. The last words he said before he left was, you will be my witness. It wasn't an option that was given to us. It was a command that was given to us. It is our job, whether you are a, a minister of the gospel by profession or you are a, a, a high school girl on the dance team, your job and your primary mission is to make Jesus known. My friend of mine said it like this, he says, the great, Brian Preston, he says this, the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus Christ is made to be nothing in your life unless you're willing to share it with someone. It doesn't matter if we know the end of the story if we're not willing to tell anybody about it. Many of you heard of Penn and Teller, the, the, the magicians, the act that they do in Las Vegas. You may not know that Penn Gillette, uh, Penn of Penn and Teller, he is an outspoken atheist. I mean, he tells a story, it's on one of his webcasts, that he tells a story about after one of his shows, there was a man who waited in line for an hour and a half and he let everybody go before him and he waited in line to be last and he goes up to Penn and he offers him a Bible. And he said, at first, I was so outraged that this guy had the audacity to give me a Bible. 
And then I started to think about it. If this guy really believes what the Bible says, and he makes jokes about it, says, I don't believe it, but if he truly believes that what this Bible says is true, how could he not tell me what it says? How could he not offer me that Bible? And he goes as far to say it like this. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them that Jesus is the only way to heaven if that's what you believe? He said it would be like somebody standing in the middle of a street with a Mack truck coming at them, and you just didn't say a word, and you let them get hit. That's coming from an outspoken atheist, guys. And if he thinks it's our responsibility, then how can we not take it as our responsibility? Um, I have a student um, in my ministry currently. Um, he's a junior in high school, about to, about to be a senior. He's the number two rated linebacker in the state of Texas. He's kind of a big kid. Um, a year ago, um, last year, not this past June, but a year ago, June, right before I moved to Texas, um, Aiden gave his life to the Lord at our summer camp. His friends for, for three years had been inviting him to come to camp and he kept saying no. They had invited him to our D now for three years and he kept saying no. But ultimately he finally gave in and said, yeah, I'll go to camp with you if you'll stop asking me to come every year. On the second night of camp, Aiden gave his life to Jesus because he had friends who were unwilling, or who were unwilling to stop asking. Aiden gave his life to the Lord, and, and when, you hear, when he tells his story, he says, the most important thing I could do when I got home was to tell my mom and dad about who Jesus is and how he changed my life. And Aiden got home, and when you hear his story, he, he's telling his dad about camp, and he, gave, he shared his story with his dad, and he led his dad to the Lord two days after he was saved himself. The next Sunday was Father's Day, and Aiden's dad, Dave, showed up to church and was baptized on Father's Day. Last weekend, Aiden was with a group of our student leaders and he was we were talking about this very thing, about our personal evangelism. And we asked Aiden to share some of his story and he hears what he told him. He said, guys, I was less than, a, I was less than 48 hours old as a Christian. I didn't know what to say, but I just told my dad my story and how Jesus changed my life. And today my dad's gonna be with me in heaven because Jesus has changed his life too. He says, if you ever feel like you're unqualified or if you ever feel like you're overwhelmed, just tell them your story, how Jesus has changed your life. And guys, that's all we have to do. All we have to do is tell our story about how Jesus has changed our life because I understand the fact of the matter is having a gospel conversation with somebody is scary. It's not easy to do. It's uncomfortable. And some of us are worried about the ramifications of that because some of us adults in this room, it could cost you your job to have that kind of conversation at work. For some of us, some of us ladies in the room, it might be, not us ladies, but you know what I mean. So for some of you, it could cost you your social status. It could cost you some friendships. It can cost us things, and sometimes we're just worried about what to say because we don't feel like we're qualified. But can I tell you this? Just be a storyteller. And what you have to decide is your fear of sharing your faith with someone more, do you have more fear of sharing your faith than you have trust that God's power can work through you? Listen, as we close this morning, I just want to say this. There are some of us in this room today that have been sitting here, and as we've been talking about this, there is someone whose my name just keeps coming to our mind. And we just keep thinking, I know that I've got to, that person doesn't know the end of the story, and I'm terrified for what that could mean. And you've just been sitting here thinking of somebody's name, and can I just encourage you to do this before you leave today? Send them a text and invite them to coffee tomorrow. 
take them to lunch one day this week and just say, there's something I want to talk to you about. It's changed my life and I think it can change yours too. How can we not? But I also know that there's some people sitting in here right now that may have been saying, you know what? I've never declared Jesus as Lord myself. I've been sitting in these pews since the day I was born. I was dedicated as a baby in here. My mom and dad brought me every week and I just assumed I was a Christian because I've been here my whole life. But I've never declared Jesus as Lord. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And when Jesus said that, it eliminated every other option. There's no ritual that you can do to get you to heaven. There's no, there's no um, it doesn't matter how good you've been because when you compare yourself to the comparison of all things good, we're gonna fall short every time. It doesn't matter how much money you've put in the offering plate. It doesn't matter how much money you've donated to charity. It does, none of that stuff matters unless you have confessed that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we can be saved. And so I ask you today, have you ever confessed that Jesus is Lord? And are you willing to wait to the time when you kneel before him to be the first time? And I don't say that to you to scare you. I don't say that to manipulate you. It's just the reality of the truth of knowing the end of the story. And so I'm about to give an invitation I'm gonna say a prayer and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can repeat this prayer after me and Seth and Pastor Blake are gonna be up here and these guys are gonna start singing and when they start singing, I just pray that you have the boldness and the courage to come up and say, hey, I wanna know this Jesus. And if that's you today, we'll be here and these guys will be able to walk you through those steps. We have seen Jesus change lives this weekend. We've seen a generation that's willing to go out and say, Jesus is Lord, and I'm not ashamed to let it know. We saw five do it this morning. And that's something that we can celebrate as a church. And so if you'll bow with me and we pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity we have today to come in here and to worship you and to make your name known. And if you want to know him today, I just ask that you repeat this prayer right after me. God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I fall short every day. Jesus, I confess that you are Lord, that you lived a perfect life, you died a death that we deserved, and three days later you rose again so that one day we could spend eternity with you. Save me. Be the Lord of my life. It's in Jesus' name as we pray. I pray. Amen.